Hi, this is Ron Hogan. Welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast in which I talk with memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Nick Flynn, who is the author of Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, which was made into the motion picture Being Flynn. And the book that we are going to be discussing today is his next memoir called The Reenactments, which is, among other things, a memoir about the making of Being Flynn, but it spirals into a lot of other interesting directions that we will get into during this conversation. First off, hi, Nick. Hi, Ron. It's great to be here. Thanks. Thank you. One of the aspects of this book is your account of being present for the making of the movie, but there's a lot of other things that are going on in terms of taking apart the notion of memory and, and memoir. One of the first things I'd like to ask you about is the format of the reenactments, which is that the majority of these sections are only about a page long and sometimes even only about half pages or so. And how did that sort of fragmentary format evolve? Well, I've, I've sort of worked in this form for, I think, all three memoirs. This is, it, it's, it stands alone, but it's also sort of the, the completion of a, a trilogy uh, begun with Another Bullshit Night in Suck City and then The Ticking is the Bomb and then this one in that they all in some way tried to sort of understand, you know, it's, it's me trying to understand, you know, where I'm from, my parents, you know, the struggles they've gone through, how we become who we are. And in this last book, it, it is, you know, down to why we recreate our past and why we, we try to use these various art forms to get a a grip on it and, and some understanding of it, whether it's writing or whether it's film. And I think with this one, the shorter passages in this, I mean, they are even shorter, I think, than in Another Bullshit Night in Sex City. They are, you know, they're even more distilled and more compact. And they do feel sort of like, you know, what it is to, to, to make a film. With, with, you know, shooting, when shooting a film, you do get these very, you know, a scene is really contained, especially in the edit. And you sort of, you, you edit the scenes together into into, you know, the continuous flow of the narrative. And I, I was sort of trying to take those scenes apart in a certain way and uh, let them stand on their own and, and allow the white space in between to actually function in a way that film doesn't function. Like actually have the white space uh, in between be really obvious and, and allow the reader some time to breathe and to, to consider what's come before in the, in the passage. I, th I think it comes from my background as a poet. You talk about the neuroscience and the philosophy of memory a lot. And one of the things that comes up, it, just spiraling off of what you've just said here, is this idea that our memories are essentially, you know, these sort of primal images stitched together in our minds that we we sort of like work over these images in our minds over and over again. Yeah, I, I see this book as, as a, the structure of it is a, is a triptych in that there's three panels, like distinct panels, and one is that being on set while the film is being made, actors are playing my parents and myself. The other panel is this meditation on neuroscience, on what it is to have a self, to have consciousness, to have memory, where that memory gets, how, how it gets enacted in the brain or played out or where it gets stored in the brain. And the, the third panel of it is this meditation on this show, this, this uh, uh, I'm trying to think if it's an art show or a science show in, in Harvard, uh, The Glass Flowers. I think it began as science and now it's sort of moved more into the realm of art. We were all the flowers in the world. The attempt was to gather all the flowers of the world together into one room and create them out of art, out of glass. And so there's this you know, wild room at, at Harvard with these perfect renditions of flowers. And it, you know, I saw that as another type of reenactment, you know, another way that we try to sort of hold the past, hold things that are actually more 
fleeting, you know, they can't really be held and how you try to freeze them, like through a poem, through a film, through glass flowers, and, and whether that's possible to do and what it does when you do that and whether, how it changes your relationship to them. The flower sequences are, are just really kind of amazing. That, As you say, I mean, just the audacity of that project to try and recreate the natural world in this medium of glass and to walk into it and see this room. And it's a room that, as you describe it at the museum, that you kind of really have to make the conscious choice to go into. You can't just wander through it like you do the rest of the museum. It's a very particular exhibit at the museum. It's it's something that I've gone to, I've entered into since I was a child. My mother would take us up there, and and, and that was sort of one of the threads that connects it to, you know, we have Julianne Moore playing my mother in the film, and then my sort of memories of going to visit this exhibit, this really quite wild exhibit, wild and beautiful and obsessive, and question of why they would do it, why you'd want to continue it for 50 years. It began with a father. The father died after, I think, less than 10 years of the project, but the project went on for 50 years, and the son continued. And, you know, they, he, the son got more and more complicated with his with the flowers he was making, and the son begins putting mold on the flowers and different types of decay to sort of to try to really capture, like, the world, not not just the perfect flower, but also, like, the, the different states of flowers. And, you know, he had a funder. They had people that sort of supported this, and, and it actually coincides with this whole sort of Torian ideal of, of sort of understanding the world and cataloging the world, but also the, the colonial ideal of, of entering into other places and, and claiming them. We sort of touch on that in the book also. And you mentioned just now Julianne Moore playing your mom. A big part of the part where you're talking about being on set for this is dealing with the scene where Julianne Moore, as your mom, reenacts her suicide. Yeah. You know, kind of having to cope with this restaging of you know, this traumatic moment. You know, that is where, like, all the, the panels of the book come together is in that scene. The book starts with that scene. You know, that's the first scene we encounter in the book. And actually, it's uh, it's very near the end of the book also. It sort of frames the two days that we had Julianne on set for that, for the suicide scene, begin and end the book. You know, I think for me, the reason was, like, at, you know, for my this recreation, this reenactment of a memory. This is a memory that I, I wasn't present for. I wasn't present for my mother's death. So this is my first time sort of witnessing it. My first time, you know, not that it, you know, you, you sort of witness things in your imagination, I think, you know, over and over again, but then to actually have it manifest in front of you is a very different experience. To have it manifest with an entire crew of, you know, a hundred people, the people working the lights and the cameras and the makeup and the costumes and having an entire crew that comes together to sort of, to, to try to capture something, some, you know, whatever it is that films capture. And they're doing it with a great deal of integrity. And I'm there also for various reasons. Some are just, you know, I didn't have to be on set those days. I didn't have to be on set any days, really. But the director and I, Paul Weitz and I, really, you know, bonded over the making of the film. And on these days, you know, I did what I could do. I was sort of there to, to witness it and to add what I could add to it. it ties into the, the neuroscience because I, I would, I was reading the, the sort of the great neuroscience, the current neuroscience books, uh, Damasio and, and Ramachandran and, and David Eagleman, at the same time, sort of seeming like that it wasn't connected to the book, then I realized they were speaking directly to my experience of being on set, of what it is to have a memory and, and to have a self. The, the thing that really captured me was Ramachandran's experiments with phantom limb syndrome, this idea of you know someone who has lost a, a limb, yet they keep feeling the pain of it even though the limb isn't there. And it's, it's somehow to me that, that became a, a metaphor for grieving. You, you still feel this pain, although the thing you're grieving is not present. And so Ramachandran developed this way to relieve the pain, which is 
by placing the subject within a mirrored box. It's a very famous experiment, and now it's you know, more than an experiment. I think it's a treatment now. You, you place someone with phantom with an amputated limb into this mirrored box if they're still feeling this pain, and the box is mirrored in such a way that their intact arm is reflected onto the space where the missing arm is. When they look at their body, they see their body whole again. And that, to me, felt like what was happening with Julianne recreating my mother, getting to see her before she died. And, and the entire film became to came to feel like a metaphor for uh, this mirrored box experiment and, and what it does to sort of, would it actually relieve pain in some way, right. you know, or allow me to grieve or to pass through grieving. I think it would be facile to say that there's any sort of, like, closure involved because it, it still, it, it remains an open wound. But any sort of healing or abatement that goes on, in the, even though it's a recreation of the event, there's another passage where you talk about the psychological effect of how even our false memories, our misremembered memories, or our, our, our imperceptions, our illusions, have just as valid psychological impact as the, as the truth. You know, Jung has that philosophy that, that our imaginations, what we create with our imaginations, is just as powerful because they act upon us. The, the, way, the way our bodies handle it, it's as if it's a material substance. So, so yeah, our memories, they, they all have effects on us in, in this very tangible way. It is possible, I and mean, that's, that's what I was sort of trying to get to by bringing in these different philosophies, you know, trying to sort of always follow like a line of types of reenactments, types of trying to deal with memory in ways, why we do it, how we sort of move through it. Like all the philosophies sort of seems to be speaking, they, they, you know, you sort of get to bring them together in one book and uh, they sort of argue with each other and speak to each other. How did you get interested in neuroscience to begin with? Well, I think it's these, these neuroscientists are writing these books now that are, that are really, you know, they're accessible in one way. Damasio was the first one. The Feeling of What Happens, his book, was really sort of important. He also has a connection to poetry. He was in Iowa City. I believe he's friends with Jory Graham, you know, great American poet. And the way he writes about, you know, consciousness and about emotion and feeling, it seems really inspiring. I've, I've always been drawn towards science. I always would, you know, read layman science just to sort of almost for the metaphoric levels of it. You know, what we've sort of come to the edge of knowing seems to be the place where poets existed also. And then these guys, I think it just was natural that it would come about that these are the guys studying the brain, which is in some ways like one of the last frontiers of, of science on the on the body, and the human body, and how it's connected or not connected to, you know, this, I mean, I bring in other people that the neuroscientists maybe would have trouble with, like the, the folks that, uh, like Halbrook, who is, is more talking about collective memory. A neuroscientist is, would probably maybe not be so comfortable with that. With that concept, that's why I talk about. You know, that's what I mean by there's arguments in the book. Where I'll put a, someone who's talking about collective memory next to someone who's talking about the hard science, the things that we can measure in the brain, next to someone like an Annie Dillard, who talks about more spiritual elements. And I'm just interested in the way they intersect, or where they're talking about the same thing, only going at it from different angles. Yeah. So the neuroscientists came in, and I ended up getting to meet with, you know, one of them that I talked about in the book with David Eagleman. He teaches down, and he he has a laboratory. His lab is down in Houston, where I I teach uh, every spring. And he and I have become friends. And you know, just to get to sort of be around someone who's really thinking of these things very deeply and, and applying them, you know, he has a very exciting life right now because he gets to come up with a concept of what we can observe, the observable universe, and then think like, well, what if we did this and we went a little further into it to see what we could know. And Eagleman, again, strikes me as a, as, as a poetic sensibility in that he's completely humble in the sense that he knows that we only know a very small fraction of reality. We only can witness a very small amount of what is around us, and we can only measure a small amount of it, that so much is unknown still. Uh, and he can, and he's comfortable with that. He's comfortable existing in uncertainty, which I think is what poets do also. Another aspect of the reenactments 
that really caught me was when you're talking about your earliest meetings with Paul Weitz about the film. You know, here you are, like, already two memoirs in. This one is probably in the tentative stages. And you're you're getting the first memoir being made as a film. And you tell Weitz, you know, I could care less how I end up looking in the film. It was just interesting to me that, you know, here's a guy who has spent a lot of time recreating his life in prose. Mm -hmm. And now you're you're sort of at a stage where it's like, you know, this... This doesn't have to be about me. <laughs> I, think I, I think I sort of got that early on, even with my first book of poetry. You know, the, the poetry I write is, is, the first book is where, you know, it's lyric, ostensibly centered on, a, you know, an utterance of the an individual self. Then writing a memoir, Another Bullshit Night in Sex City, I think I was very aware of the pitfalls of that, of, of falling into some sense that, like, that my life was somehow unique or somehow more extraordinary than someone else's life, which I don't believe is true. But it, when you're sitting down to write it, that's, you know, that's always the risk that's going to come out. It's going to come out like sounding like that or something. And so I, I think I was always careful of, of trying to navigate that, you know, trying to be as accurate as possible about my individual experience and my individual perceptions of things, which is all we go to art for, really, is to find out what an individual interacting with the, this larger universe. That's the great tension that I think we're looking for in any art. You know, not to feel that it, that it isn't also, that it has to be, you know, to, to recognize it has to be about this larger truth. Mm-hmm. Um, that it always has to be in, in, you know, somehow in awe of this larger truth that, that we know very little about. So when I first read from Another Bullshit Night in Sex City, I think I was feeling very self-conscious that I'm reading something that's, that's really about me and that I'm revealing something about me. And I, I realized very quickly that perhaps it's from the way I wrote it or just my temperament that most of the questions that I would get were not really about me if you listen closely. They were more about people having an experience with the book. They were, they were wondering about how to, you know, navigate their relationship with their own parents or they were sort of struggling with, you know, their own, you know, what, what it was to be a self. And, and they're really just having an interaction with the book, which is, you know, really what a book is. A book is, is nothing unless there's a reader. I sort of carried that through in the last two books. I'm trying to create a scrim of some sort that the reader can project themselves into. And they can have an experience with it. They can sort of see themselves reflected in some way. So that so that way, I, I you know I try to sort of avoid that whole the, the narcissist trap. I, I don't know how good I am at it, and it's you know it's, it's it's a little it's hard to say when you've written three memoirs that you're not really <laughs> so concerned about yourself. <laughs> so it's hard to justify that, right. you know, especially when you've got Paul Dano. Yeah, yeah. Coming and then you have a movie going, made, and you have right. a movie made, you know, with that also. Yeah. But and, and he's coming up to you and going like, "I'm trying to get into the character of Nick. What are you like? <laughs> what, what would you do?" <laughs> Yeah, and the, the scrim is, I mean, you go back to that metaphor a lot. One of the interesting contexts that the, the scrim or the movie, you know, the, the movie screen comes up on is you talk about your experiences in a, first in a conversation with a hypnotherapist and then in hypnotherapy in terms of the way that that sort of helped you view the movie of your life. I think you're, you're referring to, because I did hypnotherapy a couple times. I did it when I was first got into therapy when I was in my late 20s. I did it more recently. Working on this book, I did a session with this poet who is also a hypnotherapist, uh, Kristen Prevalet. And she she talked about her, her method of, of hypnotherapy, Prevalet's. I'm saying Prevalet and Prevalet. I'm not sure it has a T in the end, but I think it might be Prevalet. She has a theory about trauma that if you, if you recreate it by you closing your eyes, you go into hypnotherapy, and you create a movie. And the movie might not be about your life. It could be about anything. But the movie that you start to see, and then you start to start to try to subtly control the movie and sort of change the movie a little bit and try to make it so that whatever is maybe you're afraid of, the thing you can't see, you turn toward it slightly and see it and try to sort of like give it some context. And I've been doing that actually for, for years in, in certain ways. I've read a book about 
conscious dreaming, lucid dreaming, where, and I practiced that for a while, while you're dreaming at night, you try to sort of have a lucid dream where you actually sort of get to move through the dream and do, do things, you know, so it wasn't that unfamiliar to me, those concepts. You know, then the idea, and then, so after I see, you know, Kristen Prevalent, I go back to the set and get to sort of see the movie being made, and, and so now suddenly you're having a hundred extras, and, and you're, you're somehow influencing that story, too, in some way, in some small way, however you do it. As far as the movie goes, I mean, it must have been obvious from the beginning you were not going to keep the title. How early in the process, or, or how late in the process, did Another Bullshit Night become Bean Flint? The title was, you know, unfortunately, and for purposes way out of our control, was never going to be Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. The unfortunate thing is that that's the best title for the book. I mean, that it's just, you know, I actually tried not to call the book that, for obvious reasons, perhaps, because it would, you know, it's it's... To put profanity in a title, it might draw some readers to you, but it would also repel an equal number. There would be bookstores that would display your book. There would be bookstores that would never display your book. Papers that would re- would not yeah. review it. And, and also, but it, but it just was the title of the book. It was the best title of the book. It was a phrase my, my father had, had used while he was sleeping on the streets when I asked him how he was. It just had a certain poetic darkness to it that, that spelt right for the book. And, and it also seems to me to be absurdly over the top as a title also. So it has humor to it also. We couldn't call the movie that. We just could never, could never call that because of the the Motion Picture Association of America controls the content of, especially of posters and of, of marquees and of titles. They they have a somehow they have a complete control over that that you can't push against it. So you know nobody nobody was really happy with it. Uh, you know from the head of the studio to the actors, you know to the director and to me. But we had to come up with something. So three memoirs in now, book length projects of reframing your life, rewriting the movie of your life. There's another great metaphor in here where you're invoking the great Buster Keaton film, Sherlock Jr., where he inserts himself into a movie and starts taking control of it. Yeah. Kind of like Neo in the Matrix sort of thing. Yeah. So three books into that process, how do you feel about your life and where you are in your life now compared to when you started writing? I began Another Bullshit Night Sex City. It was probably 15 years ago. So this has been a 15-year project. I think I first put pen to paper in what would become Another Bullshit Night in Sex City in 1997. I mean, I still have the notebooks there. I, we're, I was traveling through Ireland with my then-girlfriend and began to write these passages, these short passages that eventually, you know, seven years later became the book. And at that time, in 1997, my father had been off the streets for a while, but he was still a very material presence. He was still, my mother's death was still, you know, viscerally present with me. They, they, you know, they, it felt like, they felt like very flesh and blood characters to me, that I was trying to sort of, through writing, you know, really almost embody them in the writing in some way. Now, by the time we get to the reenactments, you know, many years later, and I think this is the way memory works also, as, as you move away from tragedy, as you get to know someone better, I get to know my father better. You know, I know I know my father now. I didn't know him when I really began Another Bullshit Night in Sex City. That's where the ticking is the bomb. The second memoir picks up and we get to know him even more. You know, I get to know him more in, in the writing of it. As, as someone who outside being homeless, you know, he's not homeless in the, in the second book. He's in an apartment. And in this one, though, is, I think it's what what happens almost to memory that uh, they become more almost made of light now you know now they're characters figures they're figures that are that are projected on on a screen you know it doesn't take away from their their real embodied selves that existed but they 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 become something else they transform into something else by this book if that process from another bullshit night to the reenactments has kind of come full circle in a in a way as a writer where do you see yourself headed in the future 
you know, you, you know, I'm always writing poems. I mean, at, at various at various clips. I mean, sometimes I'm writing a poem a day. Sometimes I'm writing a poem a month. But there's always poems. I have to sort of sit down and sort of see if there's any sort of pattern that's emerged from the poems I've written in the last uh, several years. You know, that'll probably be a, something that I do soon. Now that once this slows down, you know, talking about this book. There's another project that I was working on that this one sort of took over when we started making the film, which the, the glass flowers were one of the panels in that book in a very different version. It had a very different focus. But this book about a film that I worked on in Africa called Darwin's Nightmare, a documentary film, and the director and I are still, you know, very dear friends, and, and he's working on another film. And I've written, you know, I've written a draft of possible narration for that film. And But I'm also just fascinated on this, that whole project, the whole project of creating a documentary in Africa. And, you know, there might be something. So no, you know, potentially no mom and no dad in, a, in another prose book. Perhaps it, it has come full circle and they're contained in this book now. Whatever book comes next, we will be looking forward to it. Thank you for this conversation. This has been Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. I've been talking with Nick Flynn about The Reenactments, a memoir. It's published by W.W. W. Norton. Please stay tuned for another episode of Life Stories in the future.